basically the dollars that we have now are losing value little by little, right? Um, so if it's sitting in your checking account, in my opinion, it's wasting away. Your bank might be giving you 0.2% on that in your savings account, right? Um, and so I'm a big believer of putting your money in motion um, because if it's sitting there stagnant, uh, you're losing money. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, welcome back to the show, everyone. Today we have on Drew White. Drew is a former pediatric oncology nurse turned modern wealth consultant and real estate investor for real estate investors, business owners, and athletes. He teaches people how to become their own bankers and control money supply. Drew wants to bring banking back to the you and me level. After graduating nursing school with over $150,000 of student debt, Drew went down the path to learn entrepreneurship, real estate investing, Bitcoin, and infinite banking, all topics that I'm super interested in. So I'm just going to stop there and say, Drew, welcome to the show. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me. I am excited to be on with you today. Absolutely. For our listeners out there that can't see you, I was commenting on your tropical shirt. I love it. It's starting to become winter right now. I'm freezing. It's 50 degrees in Nashville. I'm, I'm absolutely freezing. So I love that you brought the energy today. Yeah, man. I, uh, you know, I'm just trying to bring, keep the warm vibes here in the Midwest because I'm starting to get cold. The heat's on here and makes me feel like it's not winter yet. There you go. Well, we like to start our, our, our guests here with the difficult questions. What's your favorite ice cream? I'm a cookie dough guy. I always have been. It's, uh, you know, it's just my favorite. My wife's not as into it, but man, I love it. Do you make your own ice cream with cookie dough in it? Or do you go straight for the scoop of cookie dough? Or do you have to go to Baskin Robbins and get it? I got to go. You know what? There's a place here in town that is like my favorite. Um, and then, so I go there. It's a little like local place. I try to steal all the cookie doughs. And uh, mm -hmm. in fact, one time my wife had a friend over and we said we had cookie dough ice cream. And we gave her cookie dough ice cream and she was like, there's no cookie doughs in this. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, I ate all those. I'm sorry. <laughs> Whoops. Whoops. Um, well, with the cookie dough ice cream, I mean, do you put toppings on it or is cookie dough the, 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 the topping? Oh man, it's that cookie dough is the topping. I mean, you know, like okay. if there's sprinkles around and some, some chocolate syrup, I might put it on there, but I pretty much just stick with the traditional cookie dough and vanilla ice cream. I don't do the like chocolate and cookie dough it's too much for me you got to have the vanilla with it so yeah my yeah. favorite's the blizzard from dairy queen with yep. the cookie dough that's like where it's at for me but yeah well we, uh, we don't do it as much anymore <laughs> well we were talking be uh before the show that you're out in nebraska home of warren buffett so i i see the uh dq reference there yeah <laughs> well drew tell our listeners what's the scoop what do you do today so i teach you know real estate investors how to become their own bankers which means i show them how to create their own private banking system uh, to continue buying more cash flowing assets, um, show business owners that as well and athletes and, you know, and, and even everyday Joe, that's just my main clientele that I work with. Um, and then, you know, I, we can get into this as well, but I've flipped mobile homes and uh, provided notes. And now my wife and I are looking to buy an apartment complex and, and then I'm a dad and a husband as well. So those are all like things that I, I love uh, being and doing as well. That's a pretty packed schedule every day. Um, <laughs> it is. Well, I want, I want to, before we get into the infinite banking portion of it, I want to uh, tell our listeners, like, where did your real estate journey begin? And uh, maybe go tell us a little bit more about mobile home. Yeah, I'll try to keep it brief, but I really, my journey started graduating nursing school, $150,000 plus in debt. 
Um, and I was just kind of like, how the heck am I, what, I mean, what did I do to myself? Right. I had, didn't really understand it. I thought everybody told me hospitals were paying back these loans. So I was just like, oh yeah, it'll be fine. No big deal. My dad was worried about it. And I was like, nah, nah don't worry about it, dad. I got this, you know? Uh, and then it was like when he sat down with me and, uh, and kind of broke down my monthly bills that I was going to pay in the, it was like half of my income was going to them. I was making like 35,000 a year. And I was like, this does not add up, you know? And so that kickstarted my financial journey, I would say, which eventually led me to real estate. I, I did some day trading um, and, you know, I, I heard this podcast on a guy saying, you know, you can't just day trade and do nothing else. You, you know, you've got to have something else. That's why a lot of us are doing real estate. And I was like, oh, yeah. And I started reading up on real estate. And it's like, oh, that is what a lot of wealthy people are doing. And I had been a scarcity kind of Dave Ramsey, get out of debt guy. So um, took me a little bit to wrap my mind around leverage, around debt, good debt versus bad debt. Um, really didn't didn't get it, you know. Um, and I, and when I got done with the Dave Ramsey thing, it was like I kind of was like, well, now what? How do I build wealth? What do I do? And that's when I started really researching real estate. Um, and then yeah, found my way to mobile homes, which if you want me to get into, happy to happy to do. But that's how I kind of kickstarted my real estate journey. Yeah, you brought up a good point around the day trading. Before we get to the mobile home parks, I want to talk about yeah. this a little bit because I have a AMD option that is just crushing it right now. Launched some major news. They're up 20%. The option on that is up like 50%. And overall, my position is like 350. So day trading can be a fantastic way to yeah. uh, a huge lump sum gain. But if you don't have a way to turn that gain into sustainable wealth, then it's a transaction more than anything. Can you tell us a little bit about like, what was your day trading? What is that for somebody that might be a little bit newer to that concept? Yeah, I was, you know, buying and selling uh, a few times a day. Um, I followed just the ES market. That's really what I, I day traded. Um, and, you know, I found I had some success uh, whenever I was still working as a nurse. Uh, once I, I had a few times, where I was like, I can do this on my own. And I, and I, and I gave up the nursing gig for a little bit and the mental toll it took on me, like, and trying, trying to provide income by doing that was too difficult for me. But, um, and so I was, you know, I would, I, it's called fading, uh, resistance zones. And so I would go against the movement of price. If it was headed down, I would be buying at a low point going up. And then I made some terrible trades in between there. Um, <laughs> and so, but so that's really what day trading is. It's, you know, and some people, some people are only, you know, they only buy and go long and some people are only short sellers. I was always trying to do both. And um, you kind of start to read the market, what's going on. And um, so that's really, that's really what I was doing is, is getting in and out a few times a day. Um, and it's, it's high risk and uh, you have to have some, some, some safe rails, some safeguards in there for sure. Um, I really liked it and it's still something I, I uh, somewhat dabble in here and there, but you know, uh, you definitely, I, I would advise have something else on the side when you do it. <laughs> yeah, I, I dabble in it and a fun account just because I understand technology pretty well. And I understand that industry because that's what I do every single day. Um, but boy, I've got my teeth kicked in on more than one or two trades. And if that yeah. was my only income, it'd be tough. Yeah. So you're, you're in this environment where you're day trading, you get some good wins and you decide that, hey, maybe I should move this into assets to, to kind of grow my wealth. You mentioned mobile home parks. I got to start with our, our mobile homes. Why mobile homes and, and what were you doing in mobile homes? So I was, like I mentioned with the, you know, kind of the Dave Ramsey thing and not understanding leverage yet. I was real nervous about getting back into debt, but I was like, well, everybody says you need to get into real estate. And so I was all over bigger pockets like most people when they first start. And I read an article that said, you know, you should look into every area of 
real estate before you pick one and, and learn a little bit about them. And it gave a list and on the list, it listed mobile homes. And I just laughed out loud. I was like, nobody makes money off of mobile homes. Like, that's funny. Like, and then of course it was like, you know, well, okay. Who makes, is someone making money off mobile homes? Is that really a thing? You know? And so like, you know, it's like two or 3 AM I'm on the dark web reading all about people making money on mobile homes. Right. And, uh, and I find this guy named John Fedro, um, who's just a very high quality person. Um, and he's been doing it for years and provide, he provides notes for mobile homes. And, uh, and so for me, it was a very low cost of entry. Um, you can, you know, like I bought my first mobile home for like $500 and, uh, and you can make mistakes and recover. And so for someone who still had a little bit of that scarcity mindset, still scared of debt, um, it was a good fit for me at the time to just be like, I want to get, I want to get into this, you know, let's get my feet wet. And my plan had always been like, I'm going to learn about this. I don't think I'm going to do this forever and then go on from there. And uh, so that's, that's really how I found it. And I found a mentor to, to get me started in John Fedro. Yeah. So you talked about the notes on mobile homes, but the $500, can you talk to us a little bit about like, what was your first deal? Were you buying it and then seller financing it back? What did, what did all that look like? Yeah. Uh, my first deal I had intended to seller finance. Um, I got into it, you know, and it's like, I think most, a lot of people will tell you this is their story when they first get into real estate is their first deal. A lot of times they rushed it. They just wanted to get a deal. Um, not everybody, but a lot of people. And so that was one for me. I, I really rushed it. Um, you know, they were going to give me the home for free and then they decided, well, you know, we want some money. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll pay you 500, you know? And uh, it was an elderly couple who needed to have no assets moving into an assisted living facility. So, um, took it over. I got in there and, uh, you know, my mentor, as much as he tried to help me, we both realized later we didn't, there were some things we didn't see because it was just so cluttered. Mm -hmm. And so it was bad. It was, <laughs> and, uh, it was, it was, you know, um, I mean, I don't know if I, I should get into it, but there were the, the carpets were soaked in dog urine and things like that. And, um, and so I, so basically it was so bad that once I got into it, it was like the, the strategy on, on mobile home notes is you find a home that maybe just needs a little bit of work, not a lot. Um, you get it to a livable condition and then there's a lot of mobile home people who are handy. And so you can sell it as like a handyman special. You get a down payment from them, um, which really usually recoups your capital and then some, and then you're already in the positive. So then at that point, they provide you monthly payments, you know, for say five years to seven years. And so that was the intent. But once I got into it, I was like, this is more than just a little tiny fix up. And so I got lucky, found a guy that really was looking to get out of an apartment and put some work in. And he offered me cash and I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> and so I was like, it's yours. I don't care. You know, I mean, I didn't negotiate much and, uh, um, and sold it. And I, I mean, I doubled what I had in, but it was still, it was very, uh, so that was, so the first one I flipped for cash, but I typically was providing notes. Yeah. So just to make sure I'm capturing this. So you found a mobile home for 500 bucks, uh, elderly couple just wanted to get rid of it. You bought it for $500. The goal is to basically put that on a seller finance note. Somebody gives you a $500 down payment for the next five years. They pay you 79 bucks or whatever it is. And you just build a passive income stream from there. Yeah. Yeah. You're basically the bank. Um, typically down payment anywhere from 1000 to 5,000, mm -hmm. um, you know, and then, you know, also usually it's like 300 a month to maybe 500 a month, depending on the condition of the home. Yeah. Um, and so this one, you know, if someone had come to me and wanted to finance, I would have definitely said a thousand down because there's so much work. If it's one that didn't have much work, I'd be like, eh, you need to give me 5,000 down or something. So, um, and some of that too is based on what I bought it for. Um, yeah. The, you know, the, the buyer doesn't know that, but 
Um, so yeah, but that's the gist of it. Where did you find that, by the way, that particular mobile home? Yeah, so um, John Fedra, which I don't make any money by promoting him, but uh, his course is really pretty amazing because one, he you can call him as much as you want for like two years. And even I just talked to him the other day and he's not my mentor anymore, but um, he'll take your phone call whenever. And his course is really actionable. So it was like, okay, put Craigslist ads out, put, you know, put something on Facebook and he has you just taking all these steps, putting bandits out and you're doing that in the first few weeks. And so that one was Craigslist. They saw my little Craigslist ad and called me and, uh, you know, wanted to do something pretty quick and they didn't want to have to advertise. And so, um, I didn't actually get a ton from Craigslist ads in the long run, but that first one, that's where that one came from. Yeah. What did you learn from this? Would you maybe done more due diligence on it? Was it near your area? Would you have gone to different locations? Like what, it, what, any tips that you learned from it? Yeah. Um, so I, it's funny you asked that. I did what, what's called an after action review on that one. Yeah. I do those every week to start my week. And so after that one, I felt like, man, I got really lucky and I didn't want to get lucky again. So I, I was like, I want to do, I did a big review. And so there were some big takeaways. One is, yeah, I didn't do really a good due diligence. Like, um, and, and I didn't know where to look. So that's one of the things that it taught me was like, oh, okay, mobile homes, look on the perimeters of the of the inside to find out if the windows are leaking. Notice these little things on the ceilings and you know that the roof's leaking. Um, that smell that you smell, oh, that's probably dog urine. Yeah. <laughs> that's one. And then a huge one is I actually, um, I was too nice. I let them leave all their stuff as a condition instead of take it out. And that cost me a decent amount to find people. And then the people that I found broke windows and all sorts of stuff. And so, yeah, so it's really came down to uh, knowing my numbers better up front and uh, even just being more diligent about walking the home and discussing with the seller, like what are the issues that the home has? And, and I later figured out how to screen really well and ask better questions up front about issues that they had with the home. Um, so that'd be really like my big, big takeaway. Yeah, I, I never even thought about like the condition being take your stuff out because then you're offloading yeah. that responsibility. And also, I mean, to to move a house that's cluttered and it's got a lot of stuff in it. I mean, that that could be a full day, if not longer, to get it all yeah. out of there. So that's a good that's a good best practice there. It didn't look like that much, you know, and then once you started peeling back the layers, you were like, oh, my gosh, it's so bad. And so that became a whole thing. Like, I never let someone just leave junk anymore. Or if they wanted to, I would say, like, okay, I'm going to up the price by X amount so I can afford to clean it out. Yeah. Um, and then, so then whenever you do that, like, okay, we'll just clean it out ourselves. Yeah. You know? and, and another thing too, you, you know, a good lesson for anybody that does this is, you know, you, you, you can pay half up front and then say, I'll give you the other half once you've cleared the house out and I see it and I inspect it. And so I started doing that too. Yeah. Um, Cause I just didn't know how to do that. I didn't ever think of that idea until after that one, I was like, Oh, I could have said, no, sorry, I'm not going to buy it unless you clean it out. And then I'll give you the rest of your money. So lesson learned experience is a great teacher are you so i know we were chatting a little bit before the show are you still doing the seller finance notes with the mobile homes like what is your how how deep did you get into this what is your real estate strategy kind of looking like today yeah so no i've just kind of transitioned away from it um when i started doing the becoming your own banker stuff i didn't have a lot of time for it but i also knew i wanted to start you know kind of scaling and doing bigger mm -hmm. and i had created i had done a lot of deals but had created this full-time was creating almost a full-time business. And I was like, this is not the passive thing I was looking to do long-term. Um, and then one of the things I mentioned to you offline was that, you know, I started realizing I still have some notes where people are paying me for a good another three or four years. But what I realized is, you know, some of these people, like they're getting a great deal because 
they were paying me 300 a month from two years ago. Um, and that same 300 a month that they paid me two years ago today is not the same $300 because of inflation and the devaluing of our dollars. So um, I realized if you get into apartments or, you know, single family, anything like that, um, where you're renting, you, you have more responsibility than, than I have right now with these notes, but you can raise your rents when inflation comes and you can do things to adjust. And also the other thing is I'm not really getting any tax, great tax benefits from holding notes. Um, you get a lot more benefits in multifamily with depreciation and things like that, that I, I'm, and so I got into it thinking like, oh, I'm going to get all these awesome tax benefits. I met with my CPA and I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. um, so there's just some strategies as you, as you grow and learn, you're like, okay, there's, I mean, this is a good place to start, but there's some other reasons to maybe look at some other areas of real estate. Yeah. You mentioned uh, de um, depreciating the, the value of the dollar. Can you, uh, can you talk to our listeners a little bit about what that is, if that's a new concept for them? Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, for me, it's, there's a lot going on about inflation right now. You see things about people talking about meat prices and cost of an Oreo going up. Um, and so I think right now, the most recent number I, I read was that um, the consumer price index was 5.4% is what inflation is. Um, but I've read some other things that, you know, it's maybe closer to like 10 to 12%, yep. um, you know, and that it's, it's a lot higher. And so, you know, basically the dollars that we have now are losing value little by little, right? Um, so if it's sitting in your checking account, in my opinion, it's wasting away. Your bank might be giving you 0.2% on that in your savings account, right? Um, and so uh, I'm a big believer of putting your money in motion um, because if it's sitting there stagnant, uh, you're losing money. And so... Um, you know, we could get into the whole thing about how they calculate uh, inflation. It's pretty, it's pretty twisted if you get down to it. Like the consumer price index is created by the Fed, uh, the number they come up with, and the Fed's the one printing the money. So it's pretty, pretty fascinating if you get into it. But the real concept is that um, they can print money without consequence, which then devalues the dollars that you and I have sitting there. I want to pull on the string a little bit. So the $300 essentially that you're getting today spends like $300. But mm -hmm. tomorrow, when you get that $300, five years down the line, inflation is at 5%, 10%. So essentially each year, your dollar is spending five to 10% less. So in five years, that $300 might be worth $30 or $200. I don't know the math off the top of my head, but you mentioned the way they calculate uh, CPI. So CPI is consumer price in, in index, and it's a way that we judge how much inflation is in the economy. I think it's very interesting that the way they calculate it is based off of they can pull factors in, they can push factors out, all of that kind of thing. And one of the reasons I've heard about this is because if you think about it, all of the government's entitlement programs are based off of the CPI index. So they have a net benefit to lower the inflation numbers so that they're not paying out more on the, on the uh, entitlement benefits, which right. actually offsets the budget and makes it look really crazy. Um, any, anything you would add to that? Cause I, I, I kind of want to hear your thoughts on this as well. Yeah. So there's a guy in our group named Bob and he's just fascinating with this stuff. And he's the one that teaches me a lot of these things. And he was saying, he just heard a guy say that if they measured inflation the way that they did in 1981, um, to today, because they just kind of can change the rules of how they measure it. It'd actually be at like 14% based on Whoa. what it was in the early eighties. Um, the other thing that's funny is that the fed states that their goal is 2%. But even when when they're running it, they're doing the calculations. The government's part of this. 
they say they end up with 5.4%. So even, you know, and the other thing I would add, and, you know, probably, um, you know, your, your listeners would appreciate about real estate. That's why like, you know, the people that I'm connected with that are wealthy, that I know that are wealthy and, um, and what I do with money as well is, you know, that's why you look to invest in real estate and why you look to, you know, buy businesses and be a business owner, because what do you do when inflation comes? Well, you can adjust your, you can increase your rents you can increase your prices. You know, my brother owns a coffee shop. So he just literally increased his prices for the first time in a year because inflation's hitting his business. And he's like, you know, all these people are getting a huge discount. I gotta, I gotta up it, you know? And, uh, and so there's, that's why, that's one of the things like our, our system is kind of set up to either, you either need to spend your money, uh, don't let it be stagnant or, you know, go invest it. And that's really, I think how our, the way our economy is structured at the moment. Yeah. And the inflation is the key reason why I don't think you can save your way into wealth. So my principles on how I look at investing is I want assets that cash flow, that appreciate over time, that offer some kind of tax benefit. And if I can get leverage on it, then that's also the net positive, but it's not mandatory for me. And the reason why uh, I, I say cash flow and appreciate over time is that idea of inflation, that tomorrow's dollar will not spend as much as today's dollar. So we need to make sure that it appreciates over time. Because if you're just getting that steady cash flow stream five years from now, you're not in a better place. You're just keeping up with inflation, maybe. Huge tax benefits to real estate. And, uh, you know, I think most people agree taxes are probably going up in the future. And so, again, that's another way to, uh, to you know, save yourself on some taxes as well. Yep, absolutely. Well, I want to switch into this idea of an infinite banking. And before you even, we even have this conversation, I'm a huge advocate of this. And I'm going to challenge everybody out there that's listening to this. If you don't understand it, there's a lot of great resources out there to help change your mindset around this because you have not been taught to learn and understand infinite banking. It does take a mindset shift. But with the idea of your, your money sitting in a bank account is going to depreciate over time and is never going to be the price of inflation. So your idea should be that you should have a tailwind behind your savings account or a place where you can store money that at least allows it to grow at the pace of inflation, if a little bit ahead of it. So at the highest level, what, what is this concept of infinite banking and changing the relationship from banking to back to you and me? Yeah. Um, you know, and so it's, I, I appreciate what you said there because it does require such a big shift and the, what you see the financial gurus and hear them talk about what I'm about to talk about, they're very much, you know, against and rail on. Um, so it's, it's basically using overfunded whole life insurance, but you not using it for the insurance purposes per se, but using it for a banking system. And so you look at your premiums that you pay in are actually like a deposit into your banking system. And there's reasons for it. You get guaranteed uh, tax-free growth in there. You can never interrupt the compounding interest going on inside the policy. And then you can take liens against it to do what we've been talking about on the show already to go buy cash flowing assets. Most people have been taught about money that it's um, either or, right? So I either invest in this deal or I keep my money in my savings account or whatever, you know, or in my qualified plan. And what's really cool about this concept is it's, it's actually and, it's both. Because what happens is that those premiums, those deposits that you're making a payment into, um, you can take a loan against and go use in real estate, but you cannot interrupt that compounding going on inside of your banking system because it's for all intents and purposes a lien on your policy so your money continues growing tax-free guaranteed 
hopefully I didn't muddy the waters. You can let me know if I did. <laughs> no, I think that's a, that's a good starting point. So the one thing that I always say to people when they're looking at this or trying to understand it is I believe that Dave Ramsey and Susie Orman are right when they talk about whole life policies in the way that they know whole life policies. Correct. And what we're talking about here is a properly structured, low insurance, high cash value policy. How do, I, how do I know when I go talk to a financial advisor or an insurance salesperson or something like that, that this policy would be structured to allow all the great benefits of tax-free growth, uninterrupted compound, being able to loan against it and things like that? Yeah. Um, so you want to know, are they using a mutual company or are they using a stock company? And the reason for the mutual company is because you are a shareholder when you have a policy with them. And so you get the benefits of, of that. You get the benefits of taking loans. You get um, the benefits of the dividends that they pay every year. So even so that 4% tax-free actually doesn't include dividends that you get on top of it. Um, so that's, you know, that's really one thing you want to know a couple of things like, can I take loans right away? I work with quite a few people who they come to me and they think they have infinite banking set up, but then they'll tell me, well, I can't take a loan on it for five years. Um, you know, there's a seasoning period or something. And I'm like, that's not infinite banking. You should be able to take a loan like right away. Um, so you want to, and you know, and like, um, and there, there is like a group of, you know, Nelson, Nelson Nash is the creator of this. And so um, you can ask them what they know about Nelson Nash. Honestly, that's a great place and, and see if they're a true like Nelson Nash believer as well. Um, also, if you see, if you get something designed for you and, and you have very little cash value at the start, like you mentioned, traditional whole life and the way that Dave and, and Sue Zorman describe it is, is not great. Um, and so they should have something in there called a PUA writer which is a paid up addition rider. And that's, gonna, that's where you're gonna basically get some more cash value up front. So it should be a specifically designed whole life insurance policy. Yeah, absolutely. So basically what you're looking for is somebody that understands the concept. Nelson Nash is kind of the originator or the promoter of this thought, but it's not a new concept, right? Walt Disney used these policies to start Disney World, JCPenney to start JCPenney and a number of different examples out there. You mentioned the idea of a mutual company versus a stock company. Can you can you give us some examples of a mutual company and some examples of a stock company so our listeners can kind of understand that piece? Yeah. Um, so like mutual company would be like, um, and there's a few like we work with like Emeritus is one, Lafayette Life. Um, and so, you know, like, so I have a couple policies with Emeritus. And so with them, um, you know, I get the benefits of all the things I mentioned earlier. Um, I get the dividends, whereas a stock company you're not going to get the, who, who are they going to give that to? They're going to give to their, their, you know, shareholders. Right. And so in that, in that scenario, you are not a shareholder. Um, I'm having a tough time coming up with the ones off the top of my head, but it's actually very easy to look up as well. You can type in, you know, on Google pretty quickly if you're working with a stock company or a mutual company. Um, and then there's also really companies that are more infinite banking friendly than others. I won't like shout out any that aren't, but, you know, but, um, but there are some that really don't like it. And, and one of the reasons is that the, the person who sets up the policy, there's some companies where uh, if you take a loan, it actually hurts their commission. And so they don't really want you taking loans. Um, so that's why it's, it is really important, like you said, to find someone that really understands who the right companies are to work with, whether that's me or someone else, it doesn't matter. I mean, but as long as you just make sure it's someone, you know, like, and, and trust and knows what they're talking about with that. You want to go with a mutual company. You want to go with someone like Drew that understands how to structure these policies to get you the least amount of, of death benefit and the most amount of cash value. Um, you mentioned this idea of growing at 4%. And Nelson, in his book, Come, Becoming Your Own Banker, 
uh, talks about this idea of if you're flying from Birmingham, Alabama to Chicago, it's a direct flight, it's straight as an arrow. Um, and if you get up in a plane traveling 180 miles an hour, but you have a headwind, it's going to take you longer than if there was no wind. Pretty easy concept, right? But now if you turn the wind and you have a tailwind, you'll get there faster. That's what you're doing with these systems. You're stuffing cash into a structure, properly structured policy that grows at 4% a year plus dividends. And then this idea that you can loan against, not loan your money, loan against the policy. Um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about like, wh why would you loan against the policy? What are the terms around that? So I, I know Dave and uh, Ramsey and Susie will talk about you're loaning your own money, but you're not loaning your own money. Can you help us understand that? So uh, sometimes people are wondering like, why? Like, why can I take this loan on this money, right? Um, and I hate to spoil this for the listeners, but one of the, one of the things that's guaranteed in life is death. And so what the insurance company can do is say, let's just do a very round hypothetical number. But I, let's just say I wanna take 100,000, I've put 100,000 in and I wanna take 100,000 out. Um, that, that is the insurance company's money. There is a lien on my policy, so it is gonna continue growing. But I could I could choose to never pay that loan back. It's an interest only loan, um, you know. If you, and Nelson Nash would encourage you to play honest banker with yourself and to basically not steal from yourself. And so he would encourage you, you know, if you're going to buy real estate, let other people pay that back over time, pay that loan back over time. Um, but technically, it's an interest only loan. Right now, it's five percent simple interest. Um, and so, you know, you can the reason you can do that is let's just say along with that hundred thousand dollars. I have a million dollar death benefit on my life. If I pass and I never paid that $100,000 back, well, they know they're gonna recapture that $100,000 and they're gonna pay my wife $900,000 instead of you know, the hundred or instead of the full million. So that's why is that they know they're gonna recapture that. Their insurance companies are some of the smartest companies in the world with their money, just financially stable. Um, and uh, yeah, and so and then the last thing is just that, you know, we would really highly encourage that you do pay it back because then you can keep buying more cash flowing assets. But if you don't want to, technically you don't have to. That's the key difference, right? I think people say you're borrowing your own money. No, you're borrowing the insurance money and the insurance company puts a lien on your policy. And then at that point, you're playing a simple arbitrage game, right? You are loaning $100,000 at 4%. You're buying a $100,000 property that spits off 12% you're arbitraging the difference between the two. Um, and you can use that 12% to pay the loan back, or you can use other sources of income to help you accelerate paying that loan back. And all of a sudden now you have velocity, this idea of motion and money. Yeah, and as you as you pay that back, I should mention, it relieves that loan, Each, or it relieves a portion of that loan as well. Um, other things you can do, I mean, you could go out and say, you know, with $100,000 and go buy a $100,000 property, or right now, uh, the bank's money is very cheap. So you could say, well, actually, I'm going to go put 100000 as a down payment, right? Uh, and then still leverage the bank's money as well. So there's lots of strategies you can use there as well. Um, but yes, that's essentially how it works. This is the common question I get at this point. Why wouldn't I lend the, borrow the money from the bank? I mean, Drew, you're telling me I can go borrow the money at 4% from an interest company, insurance company and my policies, but the bank today is offering mortgages at 3%. Why would I ever use insurance money instead of bank money. Right. So I would, I would come back and say, what happens when you take, you know, like, so our, we're assuming though, they have to put some money down, right. For a deposit in this scenario you're giving me. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So what happens to that money that you're going to put down for your deposit? As soon as you take it out of your bank, first off, 
were you getting any interest on it? Like we talked about earlier, I think I said maybe 0.2%, right? So if you were getting 0.2% and you put that money down under for the down payment, you've now interrupted any compounding interest you had, you know, so you're back to zero. Um, and, you know, so versus if you put it in your system and you take it out of your system for the down payment, well, like I mentioned earlier, you can't interrupt that 4% tax-free guaranteed. Um, and so you're not, so you can use that money. You can also then there's, there's, you know, and I'm not a CPA, but when you set, you can set up, you know, a structured loan between, you know, your real estate company and yourself, and you can pay back that loan with interest. And then I've been told by the CPAs I work with that you can deduct that interest back. So there's some, there's some benefits to loaning yourself that money as well that, you know, I mean, I don't want to get lost in the weeds, but there's a lot of reasons um, that go along with that. Yeah, I think the uninterrupted compound interest is where my light started shifting, right? So you borrow $100,000, that $100,000 is still going to grow at 4%. So it's right. 104, 108 and some change, 112, 112 and some change, et cetera, where if I borrow that $100,000 from my savings account, now I'm trying to build back that $100,000. I wasn't already getting interest on it. And now I've taken out that compounding effect in uh, I think everybody knows compounding is the key to financial success or, or abundant wealth. I got into this space and I, I've probably told this story once or twice, but for those that never heard it, because I got to a loan limit with banks. So I fell out of the Fannie and Freddie box that they could check because I had six loans. And most Fannie and Freddie loans, after you have five, they stop doing it. And some banks can go up to 10, but I started falling out of it. And so besides sending, you know, I, my dog's vaccine records and all of my birth dates and commission checks and, and tax records and all this kind of stuff, even after that, I fell out of their box. So I needed another source of loans. And this allowed me to do that, put money in a place where I, through a contract, guaranteed that I can borrow against that money. And the second thing I would say is I hear a lot of folks talk about like when the market crashes, they're going to go invest and they're going to borrow money from banks. I don't know if people remember in 2008, all the credit lines started closing down and all of those loans started getting called. And even in 2020, Wells Fargo cut off all of their personal lines of credit. Now, imagine you're in a situation where you have $100,000, a million dollars out in personal lines of credit. And Wells Fargo says, hey, you've got 30 days to pay this million dollars back. And an infinite banking policy, the insurance company can't do that. And it's written in the contract because if you die, they're just going to get it from your death benefit. They know they're going to get paid eventually. So yeah. I don't know anything to add. I like to share the reason why I'm so passionate about this, but uh, anything you would share there? The only thing I would add, you know, is like, just let's say, you know, and I'm not, not that I'm like against the stock market here, right? I mentioned the day trading thing, but when you're growing at that 4% tax-free guaranteed, it doesn't sound, you know, 4% doesn't sound amazing, right? Um, but one of the things that people don't understand either is every year that's locked in. So you get that gain locked in. And then we mentioned uninterrupted compounding is very powerful. Well, in the stock market, you might be up, you know, 15%. And then, you know, I mean, last year, right, it crashed in like, what was that February or March, it, it took a huge dip, all these people were worried. Uh, in this situation, you cannot, you don't have dips because you lock it in, it continues growing. Um, so that's why there's some people transitioning more towards this idea, you know, and using it to in places where they can control their money more with real estate and businesses and, and also with infinite banking to go hand in hand with it. That 4% uninterrupted compound is the key part of this. But I would also say whenever I had this conversation, people hear 4% and they're like, oh, well, the market's up 22% this yeah. year. Why would I do that? And I have to quickly remind them, this is not an investment. It yes. is a warehouse for your cash in between deals, 
in between cash driven hard, uh, heavy events, it is not an investment. It is a saving, it's a juiced up savings account that offers tax benefits, appreciation, uninterrupted compound, death benefits, other entities, under other things, but it's not an investment. Yeah, that's terrific. That's exactly what we tell people because people will be like, well, why would I do that when I can get X amount in the stock market or, you know, doing this? And we're like, no, 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 no. And again, it's that goes back to that either or, right? Mm -hmm. So that person's looking at it totally wrong. They're thinking like, if you want to invest in the stock market, great. We're just saying, like you said, this is a warehouse, a good place to to you to put that money that you are going to use for those things because it's an and asset. And most people have just been conditioned to look at it either or. That's how they see it. They don't ever think, you know, I had some young guy tell me like, well, why would I do this when I can 10x my money elsewhere? And I was like, again, it's an and. You can do both. I'm not saying yep. don't do don't 10x it. Go ahead. But just put it here first and then go do it. I've heard it called the pump strategy. Like you're pumping money into the policy, then pumping it out to go put it into that 10X investment that you're, you're going to get. Yeah. Now you've got the 10X and the 4X growing at the same time or the 4% growing at the same time. Yeah. Um, before we get into our last round here, I want to ask, how are you using these policies today? Because I've heard you talk a little bit about this in the past, but I, I, I'd love to hear like an update on how are you using yeah. your policies and loaning against them today to go do your investment strategies? Yeah, so the first thing I did um, as, and we haven't got into this, but I am a big Bitcoin guy. And so I took a policy loan to buy some Bitcoin early last year. Cause I just was like convinced that, you know, it was going to go up and I could have been wrong, but so I, I was like, I just want to, I, you know, I want some more. And so, uh, I took a policy loan for that where I, maybe if, a, if a traditionalist Bitcoiner is listening, they will, they may not like my strategy because you're supposed to hold all your keys, but, um, I stored on a high yield savings account. And I, and I get our high yield interest savings account. And so I get interest on my Bitcoin for storing it there. And I don't store all mine there, but, and so I've actually been using that to pay back my loan, the interest that I make from there. Um, and so, and then, you know, my wife and I, we were also like, we are currently, I mentioned in the, in the process of looking for an apartment complex. So we're going to do the exact same thing that I mentioned earlier, where we're going to take our, our money that's in our, we both have policies that is in our policies as the down payment for an apartment complex. Um, and then we've also financed a car as well through it. So we, you know, we paid cash for the car and then we're now, you know, paying ourselves back for the car as well that we would have paid to a, you know, insurance or not insurance company, but a, a car company. And so um, those are some of the ways we, we use it. I've also seen some pretty awesome things that investors do with it as well. Yeah, I am smiling ear to ear right now because when I, when I heard you talk about putting in a Bitcoin, we're going to have this conversation after you're done, uh, after we're yes. done here. Um, the idea that you're putting it in a policy, so it's going to get some tailwind and grow at 4%. You're then leveraging that policy to put it in crypto. So you're hedging against the deflationary aspect of the government right. printing money. You're then putting it on a, 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 a high yield farm, such as Block, uh, BlockFi, I think, and getting interest there. And then you're using that interest, getting it in dollars, and then paying the loan back down. So it's, it's a beautiful strategy in the right timing. I'm a, a cryptocurrency and Bitcoin novice at best. Um, yeah. So I want to nerd out with that with you after the show, just to talk a little sure. bit more about what you're doing. But I, I love the strategy. And, and for those out there, I would encourage you to reach out to Drew because it, it's genius on, on many different fronts. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Well, I want to get us to the last round here. We're calling this the five toppings. Uh, our first topping is what is your favorite book or what's a book you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? Yeah. Um... Oh, man. So there's a book I read every year. Um, it's called The Four Agreements. I, I don't know if I'd say it's my favorite book, but it really, it kind of just gets me back in the right mindset every year. 
Um, and uh, it's that there's these four agreements in life that we all have. But the and then the other, I'll add one more. The other one that really gave me a paradigm shift this year was the Go Giver, um, and it's written in you know parable form. Um, because honestly, I was kind of a, a taker a lot, and I wasn't really, I didn't have that mindset of giving first. Um, and not giving to get either. Uh, I, if I was giving, maybe it was disingenuous. And so I've read that a couple times this year. That's been a real, uh, a real eye opener for me, for sure. Both books have been recommended to me dozens of times. I still have not read them, but I definitely want to. So you're giving me the yeah. kick in the butt to go read them. Um, <laughs> person you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the things that you do every single day. What is something that you do every single day? Yeah, I'm a big, um, exercise guy. So that's like how I start my day. Um, I, uh, I, three years ago, I joined this group called F3 um, and they're all across the country. It's a free men's workout group. I highly recommend them. Um, and they really got me kickstarted into working out again and exercising. Um, I had one year I, I did like 200, I went to the workout like 270 plus times that year. What is something that you do every single day? So yeah, I went to, I started going to this men's workout group and uh, I went uh, like 270 times in the, the second year. Um, and uh, that really kickstarted me into working out. I don't go to it as much, but now I've been lifting weights and um, and try to get steps in every day. And then um, I am I am into to meditating. I'm probably not a religious uh, everyday guy. So <laughs> um, our third one is what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Yeah, I would say um, my dad was really big on this concept of um, don't let the sun set on your anger. And, and about forgiveness, uh, he, like he really, so it may not be like an exact lesson, but he, I mean, I remember my dad coming downstairs and making things right with me um, because he had, you know, he had said something and gotten angry. And uh, it was a really powerful lesson because uh, one, it showed me that like someone in authority could be wrong and, and humble themselves and, and apologize. And um, it's, a, it's been a huge lesson in life. I mean, there are times where I know I did something and I am quick to apologize. I'll apologize to people. And sometimes it takes people off guard. They're like, did you just apologize for this? Um, but teaching my kids that and that I can be wrong. And uh, I think has been a very huge life lesson. Uh, I think I'd be a horrible dad uh, if I wasn't taught that, you know, I would always see like the kids are wrong. I'm always right. I'm the authority figure. Um, but it's given my kids the power to sometimes tell me like, you know, you were wrong, dad. You need to apologize. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and so I think that's a huge life lesson that I uh, am forever grateful to him for. And what a powerful moment as a kid to recognize that your father is just human too, right? I think yeah. everybody remembers the first time when their parents made a mistake and you recognized, oh my gosh, they aren't perfect. Uh, yes. So that's, yeah. that's a great story. Um, our fourth one is what's the thing that you're most proud of in your life? I'm going to guess everybody says this, but it's my family. It's uh, my wife and my kids. Um, they are, you know, just the driving force behind what I do um, and really what gives me passion. Like I'm just driven by, by family and, uh, you know, feel proud of just the life that my wife and I have built together with them. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Well, our fifth and last one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? That is a good question. Uh, would it be cookie dough ice cream? That's the first. It, it has to be cookie dough because that is your favorite. <laughs> uh, I don't, I'm, I mean, I know you're looking for one. I have two. Uh, my wife, I'm always trying to steal more time with her, especially because the kids are always doing it, uh, robbing time from me. So <laughs> with her, but I would say my wife, she's my favorite person in the whole world. Um, and then my grandpa, um, when I was a kid, like he passed when I was young and I'm the youngest in my family. So they all got a bunch of time with him. Uh, my grandpa white, but 
uh, I got the least, but he was one of those people. My only like real memory about him is that, you know, he always wants you to sit on his lap. And he, there's there's some people who make you feel like you can just tell like you they love you. They don't have to say it. You can just feel it. And he was one of those people. I just remember feeling such warmth and kindness from him. And it's like and he was the first grandparent to pass. So he's always the one that I wish that I had had more time with and really had gotten to know even as a teenager. I didn't get to meet really know him as a teenager and through adult. So that, he'd, he'd be the one that and then he just was every story my dad tells about was just the kindest man ever. He would, uh, I'm going to share this, but then I'll stop. But he would, my grandma would, uh, my, my grandpa would put a blanket over the windshield in the winter so that her windshield wouldn't ice over. And then he'd go out and he'd warm the car up for her and scrape off anything else ice wise. She literally had to drive a block and a half to her work, but he would do that for her every morning. <laughs> and so, you know, just an amazing person that I wish I just had gotten to have more time with. Yeah, well, Drew, this is the first time we're getting to connect, and I can already tell that that gene is hereditary in your family because I—I I mean, I feel the warmth, I feel the genuine generosity, and um, uh, just aura that you present. So I've got to give you a kudos there, and uh, you. to your grandfather as well for passing that down. But if our listeners wanted to find out more about you, where's the best place we could send them? Yeah, I'd go to my website www.ibcdrew.com. IBC stands for Infinite Banking Concept. So ibcdrew.com, there's a little uh, short three-day email course. And then they can also, if they want to just book a call with me, um, they can do that as well on there. Perfect. Well, we'll leave all those links in the show description. And uh, Drew, fantastic time. Uh, really appreciate the knowledge. I know we're going to have to have you back on to talk about Bitcoin because I am definitely learning more about blockchain. I would not say I'm an expert. Bitcoin is a portion of the blockchain. It is not the blockchain. It is a portion of it. And I want to learn more about it from you. So We'll have to have you back on soon. Yeah. Thank you, Matt. That was great. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.